Today, as we continue in our series in the book of Joshua, we see God reveal himself in his justice and his amazing, astonishing mercy. And we are challenged to respond in our lives with a strong and courageous faith. The story is told of a college professor that clearly in his syllabus for the class laid out his expectations. There were three five-page papers due, one on September 30th, one on October 30th, and one on November 30th. He said, make sure that you have them done by the due date, because if you don't, unless you are physically confined to the infirmity or in the hospital, or unless there was a death in the immediate family, you will get an F on that assignment. Does everyone understand that? They all said yes. On September 30, a small number of the class didn't have their papers done. They said, oh, professor, we didn't budget our time properly. We didn't, haven't made that transition from high school to college the way we should have. Please don't flunk us. Please give us a, a few more days to get our papers finished. He said, okay, this once, I'll give you a break. I will let you have three more days to get your papers in. But don't you let this happen again. Oh, no, we won't let it happen again, they said. Thank you so, so, so much. Then... October 30 came. This time, even more students didn't have their papers done. He asked, where are your papers? He said, well, you know how it is, Prof. We have midterms. We have all kinds of assignments from other classes, plus it's homecoming week. We're just running a little behind. Please give us just one more chance. You don't have your papers? Do you remember what I said last time? I said, don't even think about not having this one in on time. And now more of you don't have them? Oh, yes, they said, we know. He said, okay, I'll give you three days to turn in your papers. But this is the last time I extend the due date. But then came November 30th. This time, even more students hadn't done their paper on time. The professor watched them as they walked in, as cool and as casual as they could be. So he said, Johnson... What he replied, do you have your paper? Don't worry about it, prof. He responded, I'll have it for you in a couple days. Johnson, you don't have your term paper? He said, no. The professor said, F. And he wrote that in his grade book. Then he asked Nicholson, do you have your term paper? No, I don't have it. F. Jenkins, where's your term paper? I don't have it. F. Then out of the midst of the crowd, someone shouted, that's not fair. He turned around and asked, Fitzgerald, was that you who said that? He said, yeah, it's not fair. The professor asked, weren't you late with your paper last month? Yeah, he responded. Okay, Fitzgerald, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If it's justice you want, it's justice you will get. So I will charge your grade from October. I'll change that one to an F2. When he said that, there was a gasp in the room. He asked, who else wants justice? He didn't get any takers. They knew exactly what the expectations were. It was clear, and they all agreed upon them. The professor was not only right to expect the papers to be done on time, but just and fair to require it. The students had presumed upon his mercy. Their obvious failure to meet the professor's clear and agreed upon expectations deserved an F. But the kids wanted more mercy. They wanted to not get what their actions deserve. 
Their actions deserved an F, but they wanted to not get what they had earned. God is right and just and fair to hold us accountable to his word, to his expectations. And our failure to meet his clear expectations deserves his just response. But we don't want our actions and what they rightly deserve. Don't we often presume upon God's mercy just as those kids did? We live day by day in the midst of God's mercy, surrounded by it, engulfed in it, so much so that we often presume upon it. We've come to expect a professor to give us more days to do the paper, even though we know the rules. Well, today we're going to look at two examples, one from Joshua 7 and one from the New Testament in Acts 5, where God was right to exercise his swift judgment and in so doing to magnify his astonishing mercy, to amplify his patient, graceful forgiveness. We live each day surrounded by God's mercy, engulfed in it. Have we presumed upon it? Have we forgotten that God is just to hold us accountable to his word, to his expectations? Please turn in your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7 and follow along as I read. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as the Shebarim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the, uh, to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before the enemies because they they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until 
you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe of the Lord that takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the, the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua was early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And you brought the clans of Judah, the, the clan of the Zerites was taken. And you brought near the clan of the Zerites, and man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And he brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord burned from his anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Father, now as we let these words soak into our hearts and lives, teach us. Teach us the truth of your judgment and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. God clearly and specifically told them what not to do in their victory over Jericho, and yet Achan totally disregarded God's command. If you look back in Joshua 6, 18 through 19, God was crystal clear about his expectations and how the people were supposed to deal with the destruction of Jericho. It says, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction, and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury for the Lord. All God is doing in Joshua chapter 7 is doing what he said he would do in Joshua chapter 6. The command was clear and was so clear. 
All he is doing is what he told them he would do. Verse 1 starts off with that contrasting word, but. God had given the people of Israel a great victory over the fortified fortress city of Jericho. He had won it. He had done the impossible. But then Achan had broken faith with God. He took what he wasn't supposed to take. He took for himself the things that only belonged to God. Chapter 7 is a typical way of Hebrew writing. It tells us in verse 1 a summary of the main issue that's going on, and then it gives the story in all of its full details. We know before they go to attack the city of Ai that God's anger was against them because of their willful disobedience. Joshua didn't know that, but I think he could have. One of the side lessons of this event for Joshua's leadership and Joshua's own relationship with God is that even in the easier battles, it's not by their might. It's not by their power of their army that they're going to win, but the winning was always dependent on God. We'll talk about that more in Joshua chapter 8. Joshua sends out his spies as his way of getting the needed intelligence on his enemy. They tell him that the enemy is weak. The battle to conquer the city of Ai doesn't even need the whole army. Just send two or 3,000 and we'll beat him easily. They said at the end of verse Three, Joshua, don't make all the army go up there. I was only about 15 miles away, but it was a steep climb. Jericho lay at about 800 feet below sea level, and I stands at about 2,500 feet above sea level. That's a three-quarter of a mile change in elevation. Don't make the whole people toil up there. It's a hard journey, Joshua, and there are few in number and power. We can take them easy. Joshua does exactly as the spies recommended, and Israel is soundly defeated with 36 men losing their lives. Upon hearing the news, Joshua and the elders of Israel go into great mourning. They tear their clothes. They put dust on their heads. They fall face down before the presence of God. These are typical cultural displays of deep mourning. What does Joshua pray? Look at verse 7. Alas, O Lord, Why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? This is all your fault, God. You brought us here, and now you're giving us into the hands of our enemies? You're the sovereign, all-powerful God. You are the one who miraculously led us across the Jordan riverbed on dry ground. You're the one who crumbled the walls of Jericho. Now you are the one who hands us over to the enemy to destroy us. Now our enemies are going to be emboldened against us. And now your name, your reputation, has taken a major negative hit. God, don't you get it? We're your people. We're supposed to win every time. And if we don't win, it's your fault. Or we can sometimes have that same attitude. God, it's your responsibility to bless me. That's your job. You are to give to me what I want and what I need, regardless of my actions. You're the God of love and mercy and forgiveness. It's your fault if bad things happen to me. Look at God's shocking response to Joshua in verse 10. What does he say? Get up! Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant, 
that I commanded them. They have taken some of the things devoted. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. It's not my fault that you lost Joshua. It's Israel's fault. Someone broke my covenant. Someone stole and lied. Someone took some of the devoted things. Someone totally disregarded me and my word. He tells them again in verse 13, get up. It's not me. It's you. Well, let's be cautious here and not run to the other wrong extreme. Not every bad thing in our lives is because of our personal sin. The Bible is crystal clear about that. Many of the hard things of life are not the direct consequences of our sin, but simply because we live in a sin-soaked world. It's often very illegitimate for us to try to make those connections. Remember how the disciples tried to do that? In John chapter 9, it says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man uh, blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It is totally illegitimate to make connections between sin and its consequences, especially about someone else's life. God is working out his sovereign plan in his mysterious ways, and it's not for us to start to assign God's reasons for certain outcomes. It's totally wrong for us to say, that happened to so-and-so because of this. We are not God, and we dare not play God. Each one of us in here is totally dependent upon God's mercy. Each one of us wouldn't last a second if God gave us what we deserved. Are we supposed to evaluate in our own lives if some of the consequences of our own lives are because of our sinful actions and attitude? Yes. Yes, we are. Are we supposed to evaluate about someone else's life if the consequences of their lives are because of their sinful actions and attitudes? No. No, we are not. None of us are allowed to do that to each other. That is sinful judgmentalism. We cannot know. And so we must be humble. Some of the most hurtful things said from one Christian to another is this false judgmentalism. We must always be led with love. Jesus said by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. We are not God the Holy Spirit. Let's let him do his job and expose sin as he sees fit, as he does in this passage. So back in the passage, we see that first they are to consecrate themselves, and then the Lord will lead them through this ever smaller circle until the thief is exposed. So they're to consecrate themselves in preparation. That basically means they're to spiritually prepare themselves for God's works. In evidence of their readiness to follow God's direction, they bathe and they change their clothes. Then on the next day, as verse 16 says, to start the process of finding the thief. Here's a very important point. Achan could have at any time come forward and admitted that what he had done and asked for forgiveness. He could have taken responsibility for his actions and asked for mercy. I think if he did, he would have found mercy, but he didn't. He held on to his deception until the very last possible moment. He thought he was going to get away with it. He wasn't convinced it was wrong, but rather was convinced he was going to get away with it. 
No one will ever find out. There's no way of all these people they will ever pick me. Then slowly from tribe to clan to household, the circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and he's still in it. Now man for man of the household went before, and then Achan was chosen. Joshua says in verse 19, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell him now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Joshua implores Achan to confess to God, to tell him what he has done. Achan is caught, and so he finally confesses, and having had all of this opportunity beforehand to do it from his own decision and his own actions. Look at what he said there in verse 20. Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. They immediately go and find the stolen goods in his tent, Achan and everyone in his household, who were also regarded as co-conspirators, and everything in his household face immediate judgment. The consequences affected him, his family, and his whole nation. Sin has a way of doing that. And we all know that from our own experience. Look at how sin is described. He said, I saw, I coveted. I took, I hid. Isn't that so true about sin in our lives? Do you know that Eve did the same thing? She saw the fruit as it was good to eat and she coveted it. She desired it to make her wise. Then she took it and she gave some to Adam who was right there with her. And then they hid from God. James 1.14 says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Sin lures us in and our selfishness we Desire the bait, and like fools, we take the lure only to find out we've bitten the hook too. And sin reels us in to face the consequences of our decision. Will we be like Achan and hold on to our sin until the bitter end, hoping against hope that we've hidden it good enough? Or will we proactively come to God and deal with our sin? See, Achan didn't just steal. He stole from God. But it wasn't just his actions, it was also his heart. One commentator said Achan was a thief. He took something that belonged to God, but the essential nature of his sin was worldly selfishness and sinful self-centeredness. What he wanted mattered more to him than what God wanted. The commentator ends with this simple question. What matters most to you? What matters most to us? What we want or what God wants. From that motivation will either flow obedience or disobedience. There's a parallel story in the New Testament in Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, in the beginning days of the very first church, sold a piece of property and gave the proceeds to help the church. A good thing, a godly thing, but they lied about it. They both pretended that they had given everything from the sale of the property, but they had withheld. They lied, saying that they had not withheld any money for themselves. They wanted to look like they were super generous, like they were super spiritual people, so they lied. There was nothing wrong with 
holding back some of the profits of the sale for themselves. It might have been a very wise thing for them to do. What was wrong was to lie, to pretend, to fake like they gave it all. It says in verse 4 that they lied not just to the church, but to God. What happened? As Ananias held on to the lie, he fell down and breathed his last. Then shortly thereafter comes his wife, Sephora, who holds on to the lie to the very end, and she falls down and breathes her last. Both Ananias and Sapphira met God's immediate judgment for their lie, for their gross hypocrisy before their church and to the Holy Spirit, and they died. Achan met God's immediate judgment and died. Ananias and Sapphira met God's immediate judgment. In Joshua, God had just led his people into the promised land. And in Acts, God had just led his people in the inauguration of the church. At these two beginnings of two of God's major works in his people, he does the same thing as an example for us. Both of these stories are an example to us. These dual examples at the start of God's major movements with his people give us two main points. The first obvious point is that God is just. God judges sin. He has said that not following what he commanded would bring judgment. And he immediately brings his fair and right justice. God's justice is real. It is soberingly real. God could judge us immediately. He's just. It would be totally in his purview to do this. It would be totally in his right to do it. We have done wrong. We have sinned against God. We have stolen from him what should be his. We have lied to him. We are Achan. We are Ananias and Sapphira. We have saw and coveted and took and hid. We have chosen our selfishness over God's word. We have chosen our way over God's way. No one stands guiltless. We all stand guilty. God could justly, immediately judge us for our sin. That is real. That is sobering. God judges sin. Obvious point number one. Obvious point number two is that he doesn't. He doesn't. He could justly take immediate judgment upon us, but he doesn't. These examples of God's judgment actually point us to his overwhelming patience. God's Mercy is astonishing. God's grace is amazing. God's love is patience. God's forgiveness is eternal. Turn with me to Psalm 103. Turn to Psalm 103. It falls along as I read these amazing words. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. And he remembers that we are dust. Don't you see it? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Why is God so wonderfully patient? 
because as 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is God so astoundingly merciful? Because as Romans 2, 4 says, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Why does God not deal with us according to our sin or repay us according to our iniquities? Because he wants to give us time to come to him in repentance. He wants us to come to his son. God in his patience and his kindness and his mercy and his grace is giving us more time to come in repentance to his son. You see, all sin will be judged. There's never a sin that goes unpunished. There's never a sin that goes uncondemned. And we can't earn God's love. We can't merit God's salvation. We can't earn in our lives to thwart God's just judgment on our sin. But instead of us getting the just judgment on our sin, God wants to take the judgment for us. It's called the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Jesus died in our place when he was crucified on the cross. We deserve to be the ones placed on that cross to die because we were the ones who lived a sinful life. But Christ took the punishment on himself in our place. He substituted himself for us and took what we rightly deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus died in our place, taking the penalty for our sins on himself. He took on himself what we rightly deserved. Why? So that we might be brought to God. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Why? So that through him, the just punishment of our sin would bring us peace with God, forgiveness and eternal life. Why? So that we might now choose the greatest offer of all, as Jesus said, to repent and believe the gospel. Repentant means to change your mind. We need to change our minds about sin. It's no longer something to toy with. It's something to be forsaken. It is something that needs to be forgiven. And in repentance is to change your mind about Christ. No longer is he to be mocked or discounted and ignored. He is now our savior to be clung to. He's now our Lord to be worshiped and adored. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has taken the penalty of our sin and we respond by faith. And he will give us new life, abundant life, and eternal life. Today is your day to repent and believe the gospel. God's judgment on sin is real. God's offer of salvation through his son is real. Today can be your day to exchange your sin for Christ's salvation. Pray in your own words, from your heart, about your change of mind about sin and about Christ. And believe that Jesus is the son of God who died in your place and rose again in victory over sin and death. Believer, perhaps today you are like those kids in that professor's class and you are presuming upon the mercy of God, presuming upon God's grace. When it's the very mercy and grace of God, the very love of God and the salvation of his son, it's the very presence of his Holy Spirit in our lives that inspires us and and aspires us 
to be obedient, to desire to live a life of, of submission to God's word, to press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Believer, the amazing gratitude for our salvation should be more than enough motivation to strive to live a life of obedience to Christ, to not presume upon his mercy, but have his mercy be the motivation of a life of obedience. God is holy. So there isn't a single sin that he will excuse. God is love. So there isn't a single sin that he won't forgive. Would you come to him today? Let's pray.